Hey listeners, welcome back to another episode of Maintenance Disrupted. This is your host, Blair Fraser speaking. And on this week's episode, we dive deep into asset criticality with the hypothesis and discussion around are we overcomplicating how we determine asset criticality. On this week's podcast, we welcome Paul Doust to the show. Paul and I go back a number of years uh, through PMAC, which is the organization in Canada, around asset management and engineering and maintenance. And also when Paul was a reliability practitioner implementing reliability for a large corporate organization. And Paul has now set out on his own. Uh, He is the founder and managing director of CO Asset Management. Um, If I'm saying that right, CO is a Latin word meaning I know, understand. And he set out there to empower operational leaders to see, think, decide, and act. In fact, a lot of the learnings from my side from technology, Paul has helped guide in terms of, he always has told me to, what you end up doing with data is managing decisions. And I truly agree with that. And we put that into context with asset criticality. How are we making decisions from asset criticality? And what is the minimum viable information or data required to get that information so we can make decisions. And and the thesis is based on with asset criticality, it never stands alone. You're always tying or using a other variable with asset criticality to determine spare parts, to determine maintenance schedules and things like that. But before we get into this podcast with Paul, a quick note from our sponsor. As always, thank you to our sponsor, NanoPercise, where they bring us a series called Machine Doctor to the Rescue every week. This week, Machine Doctor alerted an early fault in the drive end of a pump's journal bearing on a boiler feed water pump, helping a chemical plant save costs of equipment failure and unplanned downtime. I ask that if you want to learn more about their flagship product, Machine Doctor, and all the new announcements coming about, even including ATEX rating, please go to nanoprecise.io. That's N-A-N-O-P-R-E-C-I-S-E.io to learn more about the machine doctor. And now on with our program. Hey, Paul, thank you for coming on the Maintenance Disrupted podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Hey, Blair, thanks for having me on. Appreciate being here. Always a pleasure, Paul. So let's get right into it. Asset criticality. Are we, and this, 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 let's be honest, this is a setup for you. I'm teeing this off for you. Could we be doing a little more work in asset criticality than we're actually using what comes out of it? Are we, uh, could, could, is there, could there be a more efficient way of doing it or a better way of doing it? Or not even those two, but it, a, a different way of doing it depending on the actions we're going to take with asset criticality. Yeah, I, I certainly believe so. I mean, your, your first words out of your mouth were, are, is there more work to do? And actually, I think we're probably doing too much work um, the way a lot of organizations are, are doing their asset criticality. And of course, you know, I think most people have a definition in their mind of what asset criticality means. And it's kind of it's kind of maintenance and reliability uh, 101, right? It's It's one of the first things that we want um, to understand, you know, what are the important um, assets within within our organization and our operations um, to meet our business needs. And asset criticality is the practice 
or the process of, of doing that. And, you know, I think a lot of organizations make it a lot more complicated um, than it needs to be. And I promote a very simple and effective um, way of assessing your asset criticality and then um, how that should be used in practice to make decisions that really allow the organization to allocate a disproportionate amount of resources, whether that's money, people, what have you, to their assets of the highest operational importance. So this is just one of many decisions that we make. Um, this one's kind of in the, in the asset information space in maintenance that has repercussions. Um, and the key to asset management or to great asset management is to make more better decisions than you used to. And asset criticality is one of those ones that you typically do maybe once um, if, if you uh, do it my way um, and it doesn't change unless of course your whole plant goes through um, you know, a change in the operational context, which you know, can evolve over time, but it usually doesn't change suddenly. Right. And when we look at it and, and I've been lucky enough over my career to be involved in, in the start, never <laughs> gotten to the point where it was sustained, but the start of reliability journeys, right. Or somewhat called asset management journeys. And, and there was two fundamental steps that always were at the foundation. One was know what you have out there. Right. And second mm -hmm. was identify how critical they are to you. Right. So this right. always end up being, a large portion, and, and we've had a podcast about that. Uh, if technology can enable better, uh, to the first part, which is know what you have out there, um, yeah. you know, in terms of you know, taking pictures and, and using natural language processing, image recognition to say, hey, this is a pump, this is you know, blah blah blah. But um, and and I have been involved um, on the let's call it the proposal side of many asset criticality projects, and we're mm -hmm. talking not necessarily heavy asset intensive industries, but we're typical out there, right? And the time, resources, thus the cost was astronomical to go through that process. Yeah. Um, and it was it was a very tough sell, but it, it was always warranted as being needed and the F the the everything was built on this asset criticality to how you maintained it, how often you know you would you would prioritize it for your maintenance work orders, spare parts, right. everything feeded off of that. So before we get into what um, what you're proposing as a as a you know could be depending on your organization, it's not meant for everyone, but could be a, 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 a an optional way of looking at it. What what's the current way of going through asset criticality? Well, what I see a, a lot out there is two things and, and file both of them, at least in my opinion, um, under more complicated than it needs to be. The, the first is an elaborate scoring system, right? Where you've got a, a, a variety of different, you know, evaluation criteria or dimensions that you want to evaluate the criticality of this, of this asset um, under. And, and generally I, I think it's, you know, many that I've seen are just, in my opinion, overwrought. There's there's way too many considerations. Um, and if you have way too many considerations, generally, there's going to be a few that are more important than others. And even though there's usually some type of weighting involved in the scoring system, I don't know that we often get it right or that it kind of truly matches the organization's value system. 
Um, it almost certainly matches what the, you know, the technical person, the practitioner who's doing it feels, but I've seen enough evidence that, you know, we're not always aligned when it comes to, um, to our organizational alignment on, you know, what our importance is and what our risks are. So that's kind of the first way that, um, we overcomplicate it and, the, the second way that we overcomplicate it is we attempt to instill some, some risk um, evaluation in there. And I, I don't, while risk is important and it is part of what we will ultimately use criticality for, I think asset criticality by itself should only answer the question, how important is the asset to us from a consequence only and and very specifically from a worst plausible consequence um, category. The other way that I think um, and sometimes and I I believe this to be a true error is and and a lot of reliability folks, I can say this because I was a reliability person and I used to think this way. A lot of people evaluate criticality as a most likely consequence. Now, most likely consequences can be very different than worst plausible consequence. So my my process safety training allowed me to think more about the worst likely or worst plausible Plausible. consequence. And that's the basis upon which your asset criticality should be based, not most likely. Right. They're two different things. Right. And and I'm I'm thinking of traditional um, criticality matrix where you have um, the risk of, you know, you have environmental risk you have, and I remember doing this for the first mm-hmm. time and, and, and watching a seasoned practitioner do it. And, you know, there, there was the, um, there was a death in there. Okay. Is, is one death acceptable? And I remember everyone's faces going like, what? No, we don't want no deaths, but you know, this was a major, um, petrochemical. And then the, the worst case, I guess, in in some of those scenarios, because you're you're dealing with some some harsh environments, could be that. But then you take you take that um, consequence of failure, and you you somehow apply some math to it around the what's the likelihood of it happening. Yeah. Right. Right. The, the the reason why I don't like putting any measure of likelihood in criticality is that's a dynamic thing. You know, it's it's dependent on, you know, how it's being operated at the time, how it's been maintained. It's dependent on the asset health and condition. And that's ultimately those considerations will come into other decision making criteria. Um, and we're going to talk about that in kind of the use cases. But asset criticality by itself does not need to include that dynamic um portion of it. So when you talk about risk, that of course factors in both consequence and likelihood. Um, I think we're doing a disservice when we talk about asset criticality to include anything other than the consequence at this point. And the reason why I say that, and I'm safe in saying that is because um, if you do it right, you never use asset criticality by itself. It's always utilized with something else. And I, I, I think we'll get into an example of that in, in, in a few moments. So that's kind of my argument for using a very simple um, um, 
evaluation of consequence only. But you are right when you're talking about, you know, the person in, in, in doing asset um, integrity, you do want to evaluate your assets uh, criticality with, you know, financial impacts, either production um, and costs. You do want to evaluate health um, and safety of your people um, it, because it's asset driven. It's more of the process safety and asset integrity than maybe occupational safety, um, but that's fine. Um, there's environmental, there's regulatory and compliance. There's, um, you know, maybe even social governance and customer um, service. You know, all those things can be factored in and they should because those are a lot of our consequence categories. So just to be clear, the consequence categories should absolutely be factored into your um, criticality evaluation, but not the likelihood of them. So I, I know there's a lot of people and I get into arguments all the time um, about this who people feel very confident that it should be both, but it doesn't need to be both. And that's because there's other decision processes that factor in asset criticality. And, you know, again, going back to my definition, it's it, this is what allows us to use the disproportionate um, or apply a disproportionate number of resources to our important assets. So what's most important is where there's a large impact potential. And so consequence only is 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 how i believe criticality should be right and if you take the and in in my experience now there's there's going to be a lot better practitioners around um you know that risk uh, as a criticality Mm -hmm. process when you got to the the likelihood of an occurrence Mm -hmm. no no two people in the room would ever agree on the same number yeah right right and that that, that's when we also we had you know, it, it, I think it was true through the entire process, but the the challenge was the likelihood from operations was different than maintenance, than different from safety. Like no one agreed, and we always had to come up with a sure a, a compromise, and if you will. Look, I think this is another topic, but I've got some pretty strong criticisms of how we assess risk generally. Um, you know, the fact that our people are not calibrated, which go, speaks to the point of right. different people would do it yep. differently. Um, it's really a dog's breakfast out there as to how people would evaluate the likelihood. Consequence, generally, people are a lot better at, right? Um, it's the likelihood that we struggle. And, you know, a lot of us, a lot of organizations are using risk matrices. Um, and mm-hmm. that invokes kind of what I call a single point evaluation of risk, right? Or, or practically, there's two. There's, there's the unmitigated risk. Um, So consequence, likelihood, and then there's the mitigated if you do something about it. But each of those are simply single point estimates. Great risk management is actually fully quantitative and probabilistic. Uh, So now it kind of falls down. You're not going to do that um, for your asset criticality. Um, And again, it's the dynamic portion. Things change. The, you know, the asset health and condition changes over time, right? So anyways, mm-hmm. for asset criticality, right. so the likelihood you do it once and then you apply it to other use cases. Yeah. And I think, you know, also as we, as we move to technology, that, that likelihood is, is a moving target, right? Is, is mm-hmm. you know, as, as a, um, as specifically, I'm thinking of a, a you know, a physical asset in a facility, um, not generally, but um 
you know, as it ages or it starts to go down, you know, the PDF curve, we've been tattooed all on us, right? Um, you know, the more, the likelihood of something going wrong, it does increase, right? So it's not a, a, a static measurement. Um, and there also another point is I came to learn, and you use this reference called the dog's breakfast. I believe this is a Canadian term because I've used it in many <laughs> forums. Uh <laughs> It, it, down in the a mixed bag. Yes, a mixed bag. That's exactly what it means. I was like, what the dog's breakfast? I don't get the reference, but I believe it to be Canadian, but uh, maybe some listeners can comment on that. Um, so another consideration that we talked about off air before recording was in our traditional asset criticality process, and and you know this is the Maintenance Disrupt podcast, so we'll, we'll look at it from a maintenance point of view to start with, is mm. where does the result of that exercise end up going. Yeah. Let, let me say a couple of things before we jump into that. Um, so I said earlier that we want to evaluate on a worst a plausible consequence, right? Now we need to factor in financial and safety and environmental and all those things. But what I like to do is pick the worst one, pick the worst one that you value the most. So if the organization can say, honestly, it values safety over financial results, then if, if safety is the predominant um, consequence of that asset failing, blowing up, whatever, um, then pick safety as your criteria, right? Um, but you have to be honest with, with yourself and the organization, right? right? So, and it gets tricky when it comes to kind of the social community uh, governance and how you evaluate that to financial. And I've seen some examples recently that your organization thinks it wants to, you know, be socially conscious and whatnot, but when it actually competes against financial, financial. Um, the leadership's views change. So anyways, the the point is that you do have, your organization should have a a value um, preference, uh, their value um, framework. And you need to use that in order to, in order to kind of achieve that. But if you have a risk matrix, it's already there for you, right? All you need to do is choose, do do we want to, for the purposes of asset management, say safety is more important than, than, um, than financial consequences. And, and the reason why you do that, um, you know, again, I've seen lots of elaborate scoring systems where the points can get up into the hundreds and thousands and whatever. And that sets a nice kind of force rank of your assets. But the, the funny thing happens when you, when you're done with that and you go to put it in your CMMS, um, or your EAM for in, in your asset master data, um, we tend to almost always enter it as a one to four score or one to five score. So all that elaborate work just kind of gets stripped away for this one to four or one to five or something similar to that. A, B, C, D or whatever. Sorry? Is it A, B, C, D? I've seen them all. Yeah, A, B, C, D. Right. So whatever. The the point is you've got all this granularity and then you give it up to shove it into this this four or five digit thing. And, you know, I don't think four or five digits is actually enough. Um, But what I have found and used quite successfully is just a simple nine digit um, scale. Now, just that little additional, you know, almost doubling 
of the granularity is enough to differentiate those different consequence drivers. It's enough to evaluate, you know, large consequence safety to large consequence. Because one to three is kind of low consequence. Four to six is kind of medium consequence and seven to seven to nine is high consequence. There's enough granularity there that you can still differentiate your financial consequences from your safety, from your environmental, from your compliance, from your from your um, um, uh, customer requirements. You know, the nine is kind of the minimum amount that you can use. And guess what? You can also program your CMMS to accept to accept nine um, because it's still sing- single digit. Um, mm. So I found that to be kind of the minimum effective dose. Um, you wouldn't want to go any smaller and you don't need to go anymore. So um, that's enough. Granularity is, is uh, what I've found. So, you know, again, I like to keep it simple. So just a simple one to nine score, single digit works with almost all CMMSs and uh, off you go. Excellent. And so I guess when you start to think about it and the, and the purpose of, of, you know, you, you mentioned the comment that, you know, the asset criticality is always used with something else. There's another variable that's always applied to it. So when you, when you think of it from, you know, your, your asset management had any reliability experiences, where, where does asset criticality get applied? So I think that's going to tie well, into the one that, yeah, the one that you already mentioned that perhaps we can explore. Um, and the classic example is work order um, prioritization, right? And I, I promote a simple two-factor um, prioritization. On one hand, you've got the asset criticality that's already been evaluated on that one to nine score, and then on the other factor, you've got a sense of urgency. Right. So over what time period do we need to respond to this problem? Is it right now to call out? Is it, you know, today, this week, it's going to disrupt the schedule? Is it, you know, next week we can put it on schedule next month, next Mm -hmm. quarter, next year? And look, you don't need a bunch of different categories. Um, You know, I only suggest four, four, maybe five of time frames. But if you can imagine, you know, just a simple chart that has your one to nine criticality on one side and your timing, emergency, urgent, weekly, monthly, yearly, um, or in a year on that scale. Now you've got, you know, 36, maybe 45 boxes um, that should not be of equal importance to the organization. So again, invoking what does the organization value in the maintenance function? Um, And you can answer questions like, you know, how do we value a PM versus just an ad hoc requested order that comes out or, or um, you know, from operations that operations is screaming for in the, in the daily meeting, right? So, and it gives particularly maintenance schedulers and, and planners that kind of default, here's how we want to evaluate work orders and, and provides that guidance on here's the default on how we want in terms of a pecking order, how we want to fill our weekly schedules, right? So it gives them that kind of standing guidance that I found is so often missing. And, you know, I I was under the impression in the organization that I worked at that we had a pretty good handle on this. And it wasn't until we went to this 
two-factor format because previously, like many other organizations, it's just one to five. How important is this? Right. And of course, in the conversation, you know, the importance of the asset is kind of part of it. But anyway, they went straight one to five. What's the priority? And it wasn't until we we went to this two-factor format and started spending time with the schedulers and the planners that we realized that, oh my gosh, again, dog's breakfast, our prioritization scheme had been very, very much a mixed bag, right? And so we really had to wrestle with that and say, which, which of these boxes do we feel are more important to give guidance and standing direction to our planners and schedulers to, you know, select the most important work. And that, of course, is the objective of maintenance work order prioritization. But again, you're just, just the fact that I was surprised how tricky it was to have those conversations was just insight on how little guidance there had been and how, you know, the decisions that had been being made were all over the map. Right. So the quality of the work that was being ultimately put on the schedule, um, you know, they weren't optimal decisions. And that's really what great asset management is about, is making the best decision possible at every opportunity. So this mechanism gives you that opportunity. And of course, like I said, here we're using asset criticality as one factor and another measure dimension, in this case, urgency, as the second measure to get things done. And, you know, that's what I find is a good recipe for success. When you think about other um, use cases, like whether, whether you're talking about asset spare parts and inventory management, you can use the same, a similar approach. Now, it doesn't always have to be a two factor. But the point is that it's what's the importance of the assets, plus in, in the case of asset parts and inventory, you know, and you're trying to make, you know, um, your stocking decisions, stock non-stock or min-max decisions, you know, you factor in other things like lead time and cost and and um, that kind of thing um, with asset criticality. So same thing with your master data, right? Where should we be spending our time and effort on the master data? Well, it's your most important assets. Strategy management, mm. which assets should have formalized strategies where we might apply, you know, uh, maintenance task analysis or FMEA or, or RCM, um, you know, and, and what assets do we want to apply, you know, um, formal asset health and condition management, you know, continuous monitoring, predictive analytics, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, all these things are decisions that our asset criticality can help with. Asset incident management, where do we do formal RCFAs versus you know, maybe a less formal five whys or or just failure codes, mm -hmm. right? Your asset map, your asset criticality can help you uh, with that. With asset lifecycle costing, where do we go and do the full quantitative run repair replacement decisions? Well, it's your highest criticality assets, and same thing with asset investment planning. So, and asset performance management, right? So, all of these are different kind of use cases where your asset criticality guides where and when you apply the right level of rigor to these practices. And so it's, it is foundational. It's kind of a stepping stone for all, all those things. And you don't have to make it more complicated than it needs to be. Right. And I think my, my takeaway from that, Paul, is, is and this is even what I've said with all technology, with, with you know, all, all the data people want to collect is, 
at the end of the day, what decisions, and you taught me this, what, what decisions are you going to make from that? Right. And if you start working your way backwards, well, what decision am I going to make with asset criticality for my spare parts, with my work order prioritization, with my asset strategy? Right. And you start to think about that and work your way back, then you start to see how the the dangers of overcomplicating things, which, which, as you said, and I think off air or on there, but this this isn't a one size fits all, right? It, it depends on your organization. It depends on yep. where you're at, of course, right? Mm-hmm. There is, and, and that's what I love about our industry. There is no one size fits all, right? Um, is there's a different approach based on different maturity levels, industries, things like that? Is you know looking at it, what's the best for your organization? Because the reality is, I've personally seen a lot of asset criticality projects never reach completion because of the sheer resource yeah commitment to it right yeah and, I've, and- I've seen that too especially if part of the you know quote unquote project is that you know find your assets i i've seen whole projects kind of burn all the resources just to find the assets and and put in that you know master data um and look um that is one of the prerequisites for for actually applying asset criticality is you do need a, a decent, you need to know your, where your assets are you know, mm-hmm. and have it in a good hierarchy. I, I don't think you need all your master data completed. Um, if it's a new facility, perhaps, but if it's not, um, I find that, well, how do you implement it? You get, you get your most experienced, trusted operator in the room. And, and it trusted is important because somebody actually knows the operation who's who understands the relative importance of assets versus another. And then and then you've got kind of a technical, maybe it's a maintenance person or an engineer um, um, providing that kind of because um, um, a lot a lot of the use case for is in the maintenance side. Um, and then it should ideally be facilitated by somebody who understands the processes, um, but it can be done incredibly quickly. Um, you know, I've done entire plants with thousands of assets in, in, in just a couple of days. Right. So um, look at, and there is, there is an area that's probably worth looking at a little bit differently and that's the instrument controls. Um, so for those, uh, I can't remember what it's called, but there's that kind of uh, process controls onion where you've got basic process controls yep. or, you know, local indicators. And then. Yeah. Yeah. You have process controls. You go all the way up to safety and instrumented systems. Exactly. Shut, shut down systems, that, I yeah. call it the onion. I can't remember yep. what the proper term for it is, but you can actually look at that with respect to your um, one to nine score and actually use that and evaluate it. But that's something that you have to be a little bit careful of because, you know, for example, I found when you're facilitating and you're talking about, instrument controls, you really want to ask the question, does this perform a per, uh, protective function? Yes or no? Because that's going to push you in one direction or the other, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's sometimes surprising how sometimes our people don't understand what what functions our instrumentation and controls serve sometimes. Um, um, got a few stories about that, but um you know, generally, I, I think people, if you ask the question, they'll be able to answer it. Might have to, might have to go check the logic diagrams or, or the uh, the block diagrams or something. But um, usually, you're able to answer those questions, right? Right. E- exactly. My recommendation too, and I, I get your thoughts on this, is 
you know, when it comes in, this will typically be maybe smaller organization or smaller plants that they don't have a dedicated instrumentation and control team. And I came from the vendor side where I personally yeah. programmed, I don't know how many systems that are out there. And if I did, I apologize if you're one of the listeners, but uh, <laughs> I'm joking. Um, well, sort of. But uh, the reality is I end up knowing their process and their control strategy because I knew exactly because I told it what to do. Right? right. So I knew exactly if, you know, it ever reached this high critical level, what was going to happen. It's going to shut down the pump. Yeah. It's going to open this valve. It's going to dump it somewhere safe. Right. Yeah. And, so and look, like a good P&ID will kind of imply you know, um, a function, it, it isn't right. always explicit or discreet, but you know, if you see that it goes to the, the instrument goes to the burner management system, then I would say, Hey, don't bypass that. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Especially when it comes to stuff like that, Chifloot's not uh, non-value added instruments, given the cost added to those yeah. things, right. That are just for uh, drinking water temperature and stuff like that. And so if, if I get this process right, I, th- I think what you're proposing here, and I, I, I'm really latching on to it, Paul, is this idea of, you know, using a, a, a asset criticality strategy to how you're going to, what decisions you are going to make. And most places have some sort of risk matrix already in place, right? So they'll have those consequence to environment, to safety, um, financial, right? And and yeah. my, my main takeaway from that, and we've seen it a hundred times is, you know, we're committed to sustainability unless profit comes first, <laughs> right? <laughs> could be. Um, could be, right? There's No, but just to, just to put a fine point on it, yes, however you define your asset criticality needs to be aligned with your risk management system. If it's, if it's a risk matrix, those consequence categories, however that's defined, that's what you want to carry over and use the same criteria in, in your in your criticality assessment. So that one to nine scale gets tailored to be aligned exactly with the consequence side of your risk matrix. Understood. Yeah. Understood. And you know the one of the it's not surprising, but I'm trying to resonate with it is you know focus on what's most the, the consequence that's most impactful for the organization. Right. Whether it be, and I think that's where you're, you're having the right people in the room to make that truly what is that biggest, that biggest consequence, right? If it is, if it is safety, if it is financial, right? Because I think at a high level out in the, as soon as it's public, safety is always number one of every single company I've ever been to, right? Sure, sure. Uh, Just for example, most organizations where I've applied this have chosen to put safety above financial. So for example, um, criticality nine might be high, high impact safety, criticality eight might be high impact environmental, criticality seven might be high impact financial. But what tends to happen, at least with respect to, you know, work orders is there's not a lot of nines, right? There's not a lot of eights, there's a few sevens. So, so it becomes, it's, you know, it, it becomes very manageable, right? And, and, and there's some clarity that it's, it's, you know, that differentiation is kind of built in, which can be very helpful to the organization. You know, they don't have to each and every time make that judgment, you know, is it going to be finance over safety? And that's, that's dangerous, right? Right. Um, if you do it once and the organization says, yes, this meets our values. And, you know, I, I guess I do promote that the appropriate level of, 
because this will be used in decision-making um, down the line for those various use cases, it does need to be blessed uh, by the right level of an organization that has that accountability, right, and authority, right? So um, that's a key feature of your asset criticality. Uh, it shouldn't be just the engineers doing this um, in isolation. Um, it needs to be, as I said, a group effort that's that's reviewed and approved for the by the business. Yeah. Excellent. Well, thanks, Paul. We're because uh, this isn't it's not a hot topic for say, but I imagine people are going to be opinionated sure. about this. So mm-hmm. um, for good or bad, h- how could the listeners get in touch with you, find out more information about you, your organization? Yeah, you can contact me directly, uh, Paul at coam.com. So that's S-C-I-O-A-M.com. Um, you know, you can find me on LinkedIn on my website, CO Asset Management. Um, and yeah, look, I've, I've got a playbook uh, that's all ready to go that kind of outlines the um, the asset criticality practice, the way the way I see it as a, as a simple version that is foundational that enables other decisions down the line. Um, it, I will admit it's not really the core of what I'm trying to offer as an organization, but it does kind of fit into my framework. Um, that is is a key part of asset management. Um, I like to focus a lot of my other practices on some other key operational um, um, practices that are very decision intensive. And and those are operations strategy deployment. There is operations risk management. There's asset performance management and asset investment planning. And look, all four of those, every organization does in one way or another. And the practices vary. Um, I found that most organizations try to do kind of good practice, um, but most of them do not do best practice. And so what I'm trying to do is offer a decision framework for each of those that allows them to kind of leapfrog straight to best practice. And look, it does require a modest investment in your people's capabilities. and also a modest investment in some very simple tools. But that's that's what I'm trying to do is, is allow organizations to go straight to best practice and thereby deliver more value from the same assets with fewer resources. I love it. Well, thank you, Paul. Thank you for sharing your knowledge, your opinion, as always. I'll put, uh, I'll put a link to, to uh, you on LinkedIn and also to your website. And uh, I do encourage the listeners, if you have any thoughts, comments, ideas, or want to dig a little deeper into, you know, Paul's playbook. And of course, the the bigger asset management strategy, I highly recommend uh, uh, reaching out to Paul. He's he's always a pleasure uh, to, to talk with. So thank you, Paul. Thanks for your time. And thanks, thanks for sharing. Your Appreciate it. And um, I guess I will say that I am, I am launching up my own podcast this Ooh. fall and, and I'd love to have you on as a guest. Um, I'll be talking about the more strategic and holistic side of asset management um, in my topic. So if, if you're familiar with the global forum for maintenance asset management.org, mm-hmm. gfmam.org, yep. um, the 39 subjects of asset management and the asset management landscape um, be at least the first series or season will be kind of going through that document um, on a bit of a method, uh, methodical way. Um, and then we'll see where it leads beyond that. Excellent. 
Well, I look forward to that. I think uh, I think that podcast will will do quite well, and we'll do our best here at Maintenance Disrupted to, to help get that word out. Appreciate it. Thanks, Blair. Thanks, it's been Bob. a pleasure as always.